Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This audio program may contain descriptions of violence and topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Please listen with caution. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. So, how has your quarantine been? It's been okay. I bought a camera because I'm... I'm really into editing right now, like editing videos. Yeah. The only problem is I've now filmed three different videos. And I just realized that I'm not someone who wants to be in front of the camera. I just want to edit people's videos. <laughs> but it's good for me because like a lot of I've noticed as I've been applying for like social media jobs or whatever, they want you to have like a basic knowledge of editing videos. And so mm -hmm. I figured I'd just do it for myself to like... You know, so I could show them, like, here's me doing my makeup, but clearly you can see I can edit a video together, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, totally. And um, so much of, like, social media is video nowadays, especially yeah. like TikTok and things like that. So I totally get that. So I've been starting to do that. I just got the camera, like, last week. Mm -hmm. So it's just, like, a nicer click whatever Canon sells. It's, like, a point and click camera you know yeah, point and shoot. yeah it's like a nice version you know it was like a few hundred dollars and so i've just been doing that except for now maybe someone has any advice or maybe you have advice for me i have it on the camera right on like uh -huh. an sd card mm -hmm. and i put it on jake's laptop because i like using imovie mm -hmm. and but it's really i find it even harder to use on the laptop than it is on the phone because it's like really big and it's just like I don't know. I just yeah. like to, I, I learned on my phone. So maybe that's why. But I can't find a way because the file's so big. It's like a half hour long video. Mm -hmm. I can't find a way to get it to my phone. So oh. I, I even paid like 99 cents so I could get extra iCloud storage. Mm -hmm. But when I try to download it, it still says it's too big. So it's recording to the camera on the SD card. Mm -hmm. And then you're trying to send it to your phone. Yeah, like I put the SD card on my laptop. So I have it on my laptop. Have and I you... have it on the iCloud, but I can't get the iCloud to put it on my phone. Did you try, like, Google Drive? Yeah. It says it's oh, okay. too big. So what you could do is you can always render it to be a smaller file. Okay. Um, It might not be as good quality, mm -hmm. but you could try to find a happy medium between, you know, workable 
uh, size and right. quality. Okay. Because um, the only other thing I was thinking is I could go through and cut it a bunch of times to make it mm -hmm. just like, you know, 10, 10 minute videos or whatever. Yeah. That's just annoying. <laughs> so are so are you editing it on your phone? I have so I edited a video which I thought was really funny, but I also had like four margaritas, so it <laughs> it's like a mix of it is funny, but it's not that funny. But I edited Kelly's video. She did a facial instruction video, and I just had it on mm -hmm. my phone, and I was bored, so I edited that on my phone. Yeah, and like I just find it easier to use all the control. Like it's such it's a much smaller platform, so it's kind of easier. Mm -hmm. it, unless it's audio, audio's uh, like easier to edit on the Mac. Yeah, on or the I computer. could just teach. I sh I could just give myself an extra hour to play around with the Mac one and get used to it. I guess, but mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm just so used to doing it on the computer. Like mm -hmm. I kind of can't imagine editing it on a phone. Yeah, that would be the only way I figure because phones have such like limited storage and download capacity. Yeah, it's like it doesn't matter that I have a lot of iCloud capacity it's like my phone itself won't accept mm -hmm. that big of a file yeah Annoying. so that would be your only <laughs> issue yeah guess i'll buy a bigger phone <laughs> two thousand dollars later i can finally edit a video <laughs> yeah you can finally download a video onto your phone <laughs> so yeah that would be my suggestion for that so one thing i thought we should mention mm -hmm. nova scotia oh yeah um, Normally, I don't so, make that noise when Nova Scotia is mentioned. <laughs> no, uh, that's an irregular Nova Scotia noise. There was a terrible mass shooting in Nova Scotia. Yeah. I mean, this is like unheard of. It's like normal for us. Right. But it's I mean, Nova Scotia does not have mass shootings the way America does. I think this is their first public multiple shooting in 30 years. Yeah. And the perpetrator was some guy who had, you know, like, uh, he wanted to be a cop or whatever the fuck mm -hmm. kind of stupid shit he wanted to do. And he literally just posed as a cop. He had a an, an decommissioned cop car and he got a uniform somehow and he posed as a I'm cop. Sure and just died on eBay. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Pay 150 and then he, bucks and there you go. Yeah. And then he just, uh, you know, went and shot a whole bunch of people and uh. everyone's in quarantine so everyone was home. Right. So when he knocked on people's doors, they're just there, you know? They're there, and it's not fair. It's a police officer. Yeah. It, and you it's assume quarantine, he's a police officer. So you're already in a time of terror, so you're like, oh, shit, the police. Like, what's happened? Something's happened. We have to move. You know what I mean? Like, you're already kind of on high alert all the time because the world is ending. So yes. You're not really going to second guess it. Yeah. And he also burned down a lot of houses mm -hmm. after he went there. So we really don't know how many people were killed because they're still trying to see if there are bodies. In right. The, yeah. In the burnt remains of the homes. But it's at least like, what, 22 people or something like that? I think it got to 23. And I just saw it. Sorry. I was Googling to make sure I had the right numbers. And... One of them, it said former Winnipegger feared dead in the mass shooting. And I don't know what a Winnipegger is. Probably someone from Winnipeg. It is. I just Googled it. But that's a very strange way to refer to someone. <laughs> also, isn't Winnipeg a... Um, what's it called? Oh, fucking... 
province. Province. Isn't Winnipeg a province? So isn't that a large... So it's in the province. I think the province is Manitoba. Oh, okay. I I think that's the province. So like Manitoba would be the state and Winnipeg would be the city. Winnipeg is the city. Okay. I believe that's how it is. Don't come for me. Yeah. So so we just wanted to talk about that right at the top because it was a huge tragedy that happened in the midst of a bunch of huge tragedies. And it's so sad. It is. It's I mean, when people are just trying their best to survive right now and trying to follow orders for the sake of everyone, for a person to use that to their advantage to harm so many innocent people is just an unspeakable kind of evil. And also it's like, it's just senseless. Like you're not, that's why shootings, they really just irk me. That's one of the crimes. It's not like bank robbing or something like that where it's like, okay, I see the point in what you're doing. It's like, if you're shooting, if you're killing innocent people, you're the bad guy. Like, yeah, no one's going to be like, but he had a few points. It's like, no, you just ruined not 23 people's lives, a thousand people's lives. All the people who they touched, you know, yeah, they're ruined now because of you. Like you're a, like, it doesn't matter what your point was because you did something so h- horrendous that people are going to be like, oh, yeah, the worst. And these mass shooters, they kind of have to embrace being the bad person mm-hmm. to to carry out these kind of things. So they kind of flip it in their head um, and either embrace that they're going to be so evil that, you know, people will remember them or they get it so twisted that it's, oh, no, I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Right. Or these people, yeah, that's so sad that they died, but they have to because what killer? I think it was someone who brought down a plane or something. I forget which one, but it was like some reporter asked the person, like, don't you feel bad about the children who died here? And they were like, yeah, that's a tragedy. But he compared them to being I forget what those people are called. The people on the Death Star. It's like not all Mm. of, you know, not all of them are, you know, evil themselves, but they're working for the evil force. It's like they think of people like that. This is just to get to my point. It sucks that this person has to die. But what I'm doing so so grand and holy that they have to die for the cause and it's like fuck you yeah and it's almost like it's almost like a movie where people can be just collateral damage in your mission right that was just horrible and i don't know if our episode's gonna get any brighter than that well mine (laughs) sure isn't so i don't know what your case is but mine's awful i know um I don't think I know your case. Okay. But you probably know mine. Okay. So um, you go first anyway this week. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, we can launch right into it if you want. We're doing... We're doing family... Murders. Murders. Okay. So I didn't know if you meant families who murder or families that get murdered. Uh Uh-huh. Which one did you pick? Families that get murdered, but also by their family. So it's a little bit both. Okay. Yeah, cool. I'm down with that. Okay. Not, you know, in practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
1981, a man named Ronald Gene Simmons and his large family fled their small town in Arkansas when a report was made of him raping his daughter. (gasps) He was seen giving her more than friendly kisses each morning when she went off to school, and eventually she had admitted to police that she was pregnant with his baby. So she was taken from the home for like a small amount of time. But Simmons managed to send her a letter, and in that letter it said, You have destroyed me, and you have destroyed my trust in you. I'll see you in hell. Huh. Excellent. Um, yeah, I guess that's one way to to communicate with your child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so naturally, charges were filed, but eventually they were dropped because the daughter ended up saying she had made all of it up. Oh. And so then she was returned to the home. What? They couldn't do anything. They couldn't Wait. prove the charges and she said she made it up. Was she pregnant? Yes. And did she give birth to the baby? Eventually, yes. And did they DNA test it? No. Did it look like her father? <laughs> Probably, but it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, she was like, no, it's not his. I was a liar. So uh-huh. they can't just, like, DNA test whoever, like, as much as the government can do they can't just take random babies and be like dna test them yeah have like a I reason guess. you know had she been like no he raped me and this is his baby they could dna t-. you know i think it has mm-hmm. to be given freely um yeah. when they finally resurfaced they were living in uh russellville arkansas simmons worked a string of low-paying jobs in the nearby town he quit a position as accounts receivable clerk at a place called woodline motor freight after numerous reports of inappropriate sexual advances and he went to work at a place called sinclair mini mart Oh, I know a Sinclair. Yeah, the little dinosaur. Yeah, they have the green dinosaurs. Really makes you think about where your gas comes from. (laughs) (laughs) So he worked there for a year and a half before quitting on December 18th, 1987. So by all accounts, the family seemed to be pretty unhappy. Simmons was abusive, especially to his wife, who had tried to leave him multiple times. But nothing would prepare the town for what was about to happen next. So, let's talk about Ronald Gene Simmons. Okay. He was born on July 15, 1940, in Chicago, Illinois. Three years later, his father died of a stroke. Mm -hmm. And within a year of that, his mother had remarried. So, she was probably real brokenhearted about it. Yeah. Um, She married a man named William D. Griffin, which is funny because his father's name was William. So, she married another William. Yeah, maybe she had a William thing. He loves them. Billy's. (laughs) All those billies. <laughs> um, he was a civil engineer for the U.S. Army. And in 1946, the Army moved the family to Little Rock, Arkansas, the first of several transfers that would take their family across central Arkansas all over the next decade. So that meant Ronald and his siblings were forced to start over in different schools with mm-hmm. different friends. And they never really made true connections. There's not really a lot about he's not one of those killers where people came out after, you know, like Ted Bundy, where people came out and was like, I was his childhood friends. Like, mm-hmm. he seems like kind of a friendless child. <laughs> <laughs> the saddest a kind of child. child. <laughs> <laughs> so um, on September 15th, 1957, Simmons dropped out of school and joined the U.S. Navy. Back when you didn't need a degree to do that. Yeah. And he was stationed at the Naval Station in Washington, where he met, now this is a name, Bursa Bay Rebecca. Ulibari. Oh. Ulibari? <laughs> yeah. 
Bursa Bay. Yeah, Bursa Bay. But her friends called her Becky. Okay. Well, that's simpler, I guess. Yeah. I really have never heard the name Bursa Bay. It's something. Um, what? So what? Was it like a, uh, you know, kind of a cultural name? Like she seemed, She's white. So I don't know. <laughs> huh. I don't, yeah. I didn't research the name. I probably should have. But I, yeah. I also could be saying it wrong. Maybe Bursabe. It's B-E-R-S-A-B-E. Bursabe. It's a village. Oh, maybe she's named it's after... It's a Jewish name. Ah! Yes, it, it was a uh, a Jewish temple. Ah. Yes, okay. Well, that makes more sense. Yeah, I'm glad we cleared this up. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, I was thrown through Me too. I was like, this is so strange. So, yeah. <laughs> um, they dated for a few years, and then they married in New Mexico on July 9th, 1960. Mm-hmm. Um, over the next 18 years, the couple had seven children. Ugh, that's too many. Yeah. So, a few years after they married, Ronald joined the U.S. Air Force. He stayed in the military for 20 years and was awarded the Bronze Star Medal, the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross, and the Air Force Ribbon for Excellent Marksmanship. So, oh, so he's a good shot. He's a good shot. And he was apparently a really good soldier. Like, he did his job. No one, no one came out and was like, oh, yeah, he was one of those crazy guys who, like, raped women on the side and murdered babies. But also... I no one came out and was like, yeah, he was an amazing man or yeah, he mm-hmm. was crazy. He just was under the radar. Like there was one quote from someone who had presented him like one of his medals mm-hmm. and they had to show him a picture of him presenting the medal to him because he didn't <laughs> know who they were talking about. Oh, like, yeah. He's just forgettable. <laughs> Which is weird because like, so I Googled him uh-huh. and he's pretty recognizable. He is in his jail photos, but when he was Before younger, that, he wasn't. when he was younger, he had short hair. Like he has that weird colder sack long hair going on. He was mm-hmm. he was thinner, and he had a short hair and a mustache, and that was it. You know, like okay. I feel like his eyebrows are always too dark for the rest of his hair. Yes. So I sent you a picture mm-hmm. of him and his wife, the one I really like. So that's his wife, mm-hmm. like being all happy. Yeah. And that's just what he. He just kind of looks like a normal. Maybe Italian or something guy. You know, he's just... Yeah, yeah. Just hanging. He's got a round, round head, kind mm-hmm. of. So, Simmons retired from the Air Force and military service on November 30th, 1979, with the rank of Master Sergeant. So, mm, not bad. there, but could have been more successful. So, not a failure, but... Mm, <laughs> not a glowing success. What, I, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, on December 28th, 1987... Simmons walked into a law firm and fatally shot the secretary. He then went to an oil company, a convenience store, and lastly, his former workplace at the Woodline Motor Freight, where shots were also fired. The total rampage took only 45 minutes, and in the end, two more people were dead. Kathy Kendrick, 24, and James Chaffin, 33. They were the ones who worked at the Woodline Motor Freight. Mm-hmm. Chaffin was a complete stranger to Ronald. They had never met before. He was there, like doing business. Mm-hmm. Kathy was the receptionist there, um, and she had been shot in the head four times. Oh wow! Yeah. After the shooting, Simmons surrendered to a security officer. There, um, he said, "I've gotten everybody who wanted to hurt me." So he put his gun down and surrendered. He waited there for police, and when they arrived, they took him away without any resistance. Once arrested, the police tried to contact his family, but no one would answer their calls, 
So the police drove out to their isolated home. One paper would later interview a neighbor about their home. And they asked them, you know, did you ever notice anything weird happening there? Blah, blah, blah. And the neighbor said, quote, he had the kids help him build the wall a couple of years ago. The fence, too. They went up last year and behind the eight foot high barrier of cinder blocks, bricks and barbed wire lived Simmons in his converted motor motorhome, a hilltop fortress in pine studded Ozarks, surrounded by his wife, kids and dogs, Bo and Duke. Hmm. So that's apparently where he lived in a motorhome within the trees. And there was literally like a barbed fence and then a like a stone wall. Mm-hmm. So he was clearly a little paranoid. Yes. <laughs> so when the cops arrived, they finally made it into the home and they found a scene right out of one of our favorite movies, Black Christmas. Hell yeah. So bad cookies? <laughs> no, not quite that bad, but pretty bad. Aww. <laughs> the Christmas tree was lit up with um, presents still wrapped under the tree and they had so many grandkids that a lot of them were kids presents so there was like little Mm. Mickey Mouse wrapping paper and like you know but mere feet away laid the 12 bodies of the Simmons family (gasps) 12 so on the morning of December 22nd Simmons walked from his bedroom to the living room and shot his wife and his son Ron Jr who was only 29 Using a 22 caliber pistol. He then went in search for Ron Jr.'s three-year-old daughter and strangled her to death in her bedroom. <gasps> that's so hands-on. Yeah, it gets worse. Okay. Oh, no. And that's his granddaughter. Yes. Ugh. So, um, then he waited hours for the other four ch- children to return home. So... The four children, Loretta Simmons, who was 17, Eddie Simmons, who was 14, Marianne Simmons, who was 11, and Rebecca Becky Simmons, who were eight, walked in and found their mother and their oldest brother shot dead in the living room. They were then attacked, and all four of them were strangled. Mm. They were also placed into a large rain barrel filled with water, presumably so Simmons would make sure that they were dead, but it Luckily, I guess, luckily, it appears that all of them were dead before being placed in the water. There was no water in their lungs. Yeah. And their official deaths were strangulation. I can't imagine drowning is... That's I really mean, bad. I would rather be lit on fire, I think, because mm-hmm. eventually you just go numb. But drowning is probably, like, the worst burning. Like, I just imagine when something goes down the wrong pipe. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that awful feeling. Yeah. Like, time for thousand. I think it's a pretty horrific way to go. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but it seems like he was strangling a lot of people at one time. He, so, yes. like, was he just, like, so, a lot bigger than everyone? And, like... I think it was he had a gun. Well, he did, he did have a gun. And so, I think he probably either led them all to a bedroom and strangled them, like, one, one by, by one. one in the living room. Maybe he tied them up. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't say they were like hit on the head or anything, but maybe they were. Yeah, um, there's not a whole lot of detail. There's just like you can find how they died, but there's not really any detail about like if they had any defensive wounds or any like thing like that on them. Mm-hmm. Um, then he lived in his home with his dead family for four days. That's a lot of days. A nightmare situation. Yeah. Um, And then on December 26th, the remaining members of the family showed up for their annual Christmas visit. Yay, Christmas. Mm. Um, So when Simmons 
son, Billy, and his wife, Renata, got there. He shot them both before strangling their two-year-old son. Why does he have to strangle the children? I don't know. That's a thing that happens. He strangles all the children. And I don't know if it's because... It's weird because you think you'd just buy enough like bullets, but... I don't know if he only had so many bullets and wanted to save them for the bigger people or if he liked strangulation, but he knew he couldn't subdue the adults, so he mm-hmm. had to strangle them. I mean, maybe. You know, like, like maybe he was so mad he wanted to strangle all of them, but he knew he wouldn't be able to get away with that with the adults. Yeah, because it would definitely be a more... I guess, merciful, if you can say that way, of killing to just shoot the kids in the head. Because that would be less, you know, painful and scary. Right. But I think he liked the strangulation. But Mm -hmm. also, every time he's dealt with an adult, there's two at a time. So the rest of his children come with their spouse. Mm -hmm. And it was his wife and his son. So maybe he just knew, like, there's no way I can take both of them at once. So I'll just shoot them and I'll strangle everyone else. Mm-hmm. He strangles their son. Mm-hmm. He also placed him in a barrel with water as well. Unfortunately, it seems that he was not dead before being placed in the water. And he's the oh. only one whose death is officially ruled as a drowning, oh. which is a nightmare. And again, yeah. there's no there's no news on defensive wounds. So I don't know if he maybe woke up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was awake for that. Hopefully not. Yeah. I mean, so he did the same thing. Thing to his oldest daughter Sheila and her husband and their daughter um, Sheila's the one who all those years ago had said he had raped her mm-hmm. so he shot Sheila and her husband he actually shoots this daughter but it varies on how old their daughter is mm-hmm. so I don't know if it but he strangled the other teen so I don't know at this point that's strange but he shoots all three of them but he then strangles his 20 month year old grandson Ugh. This is the same grandson that Sheila had accused him of fathering years before. But wait, he's 20 months old? He's two. Oh, wait. Sorry. So is it the is it what so the kid he shot was that the one she had accused him? No. So she I believe what happened was depending on if you read on Wikipedia. There's mm-hmm. also I got a lot of information from What's it called? Cool, interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Cool. That one was really good, too. But a lot of, like, ages vary. Okay. And one of them says when she was young, when she was a teenager, she accused him of raping her. She had a baby. She gives that baby away. Oh, And then she has another baby, this son, Mm -hmm. who was also supposedly her father's. Oh, okay. So there's this other one. Okay. Or, like, on Wikipedia... It just, there's like a big chart and it says her name and then it says the child. It just says grandson slash son next to it, you know? okay, yeah. So he strangles that grandson, son. Both. Simmons then dumps the family members in the backyard. He then left the house covering the corpses with coats, which, what an eerie sight. Like, if you just stumbled upon that. He goes to a bar to drink and then he returns home and brings the family members inside then he watches tv and drinks beer Mm. surrounded by his dead family yeah as one does so after all the bodies were found simmons was sent to the arkansas state hospital in little rock for a evaluation where staff psychiatrist dr irving kuo found him sane and capable of standing trial 
Mm-hmm. Simmons had two separate trials. After the first one, he was convicted on May 12, 1988, for the deaths of the later shooting victims. Mm-hmm. Two days later, Simmons was sentenced to death by lethal injection, plus 147 years. Just for funsies. Just for fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he never chose to appeal that. Do you want to know who the governor of Arkansas was at the time? Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. <laughs> he loves Arkansas. <laughs> he does. Um, and Bill Clinton was actually the one who signed Simmons' execution warrant. Hmm. Good for him. I bet you that goes for a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, if you could get a copy. In the second trial that concluded on February 10th, 1989, Simmons was found guilty of 14 counts of capital murder for the deaths of his family members. He was also sentenced to die. (laughs) Just throw that on there, too. Like, two death sentences, a bit much. But Simmons was sentenced to die on March 16th, 1989. In his final trial hearing, he said... In my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. Huh. Interesting that he would say that. Yep. Simmons had chosen lethal injection himself as a method of execution. One of his defense attorneys said he was ready to die. He was at peace with it and he wanted it. I think he felt that they were going to take him out. He was going to take them out first. That was him talking about his family. Yeah, that's very strange. His defense attorney also said that there was more than one person to blame in this instance. They said if the authorities successfully arrested him back when he was supposedly abusing his daughter, then the murders likely wouldn't have happened, which that's not a good defense. No. (laughs) You're not doing your job well. No. Well, maybe they should have arrested him for the child abuse. (laughs) Yeah, but... No one's arguing that. Yes, but also... All the other shit. Prosecutors from the old case came back at him and was like, well, we only dropped the cases for child abuse because the family requested it. Mm -hmm. Which I also think is a bad defense for them. I mean, it is. We only did it because the family wanted it. Well, Well, yeah, if I was abusing someone, I'd probably want you to not press charges too. (laughs) Yeah, I think the main issue is that she it's Sheila, right? Which one? The daughter who was raped. Yes, Sheila. So yeah, I think because Sheila was unwilling to to go to right. testify and to pursue the charges, I think their hands were tied. Their hands were tied, technically. Yeah. Which sucks. Which and is I... that's what they should say. They would be like, Listen, if the victim wanted to not move forward with charges, we yeah. we wouldn't have evidence if she didn't want to cooperate to right. further prosecute him. Right. But instead of just saying, like, oh, the family didn't want it, it's like, the yeah, family it's the family, that's it. the issue. Yeah. <laughs> the whole family's what's the problem. <laughs> so, in the end, Simmons died by lethal injection, mm. but he had killed everyone in his family, so no one was there to claim his body. Yeah. And he was buried in a common grave. Unforeseen downsides to killing your family. Yeah. Yeah. So, in total, he killed 16 people, 14 of which were his family members. And him and his family's horrific story is one of the largest family massacres in history. I mean, yeah, he had a shit ton of family. It's insane how much family he had. Well, because they had seven kids. And I wanted to do this story because it's so good in a way, like, you know, in in such a bad way. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's one of those cases that's like, for someone who killed so many people, other than the people he killed, he really made no impact on anyone else's life. Yeah. Good or bad. 
Like, mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah, but up until then. And I wonder, do you have any information about why he did it other than the he thought that he had to kill them like he was paranoid on reddit so there's a few things some people thought it was drugs but everyone Mm -hmm. was like there's no history of drugs there was he wasn't acting we you know after he was arrested or anything but i think and a big there's a big forum on reddit about how he was in the vietnam war Mm. And so maybe he suffered from some head injuries or from untreated trauma. And so he started to get paranoid that his family wasn't actually his family. There were people on the other side, you know, Mm. trying to get him because he with the abuse and stuff, it seems like his wife tried to escape him like four or five times. Yeah. And he would basically find her, beat her and then force her back and then said, like, you don't leave me. The only way you get to leave is if you're dead. Yeah. And so she stopped trying because she got so fearful. And he, then they think, she had started asking about how, like, what you need to do to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. And just, like, asking, you know, whatever. And I guess he found out about it. So some people think he was so enraged. But I think it has to be more than that because there was no reason for him to drive to the places he had once worked and shoot all those people. Yeah, no. And there's also, it doesn't say this because normally with, like, sexual assault things, they don't put the names a lot of times. But I have a feeling that Kathy, the girl he shot four times in the head, was probably the same person who said he was making unwanted sexual advances. Yeah, that would I imagine. Sense. He's just a creepy McCreeperson. Yeah, he's creepy and it. there's no real reason. He did it on Christmas. That yeah. sucks. Like, yeah. And all those kids, too, it's just like, you shoot your wife in a some horrific domestic battle, that's awful enough. But to kill a bunch of kids by strangling them, like, there's no, they're not going to leave you. They're not, half of them aren't even yours. They're your grandkids. You know what I mean? It's just like, there's just no reason. Yeah, like, it's one thing to get in a heated argument and kill your wife in passion. You're still, that's still awful. Mm-hmm. But at least you can somewhat wrap your head around it. But to strangle a bunch of kids like that's there's no reason for it. No, it's and they're all his grandkids, too. They trust him. And also you're going to turn yourself in at the end. So it's not even like, oh, well, they can't know because they'll be witnesses. It's like in the end, you just turned yourself in. Yeah. It's like you should have just turned yourself into a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. Like (laughs) that would have saved us all a lot of trouble. You're like, I could just shoot them. That's. There you go. That's when you turn yourself in. Yeah. Yeah. When you, you got to step back for a second, just be like, well, this might be easier. <laughs> I just went away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. I had actually never, ever, ever heard of that. Yeah. So, it's... yeah. Oh, that's so sad. <sighs> so Maybe yours will be better. It won't be. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, compared to that, I guess if you're doing pure body count. <laughs> uh, yes do kids die in it teenagers mine's sadder because they're babies. yes no I'm you, you win i win um, <laughs> yes you win uh so i mean i think you're gonna know immediately this case Ooh, okay Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
So, I am going to tell you about the Clutter family murders. Ooh, wait, is this okay? If this is what I think it is, then I know. What do you think it is? Wait, is this that weird family? I don't even know how to describe it. Is it that the ink cold blood people? It is. Ah, yay! <laughs> I have a confession to make before I go into this. Okay. I've never read In Cold Blood. What? You should do it. <laughs> I ordered it. It arrived yesterday. Yeah, you should do it. It's a, it's a very, very good book. Yes. So I am going to read it. But for this, I actually watched. I got a free Sundance subscription Fun. for seven days. And I watched a new documentary series that's out about it called Cold Blooded. Ooh. Wait, but you didn't watch In Cold Blood? <laughs> nope. You gotta but, watch it. It has Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. And but, it's okay. amazing. And it also has the guy who played Herschel in The Walking Dead. But uh-huh. he's much younger, so he doesn't look like Herschel. So yeah. I'm okay with that. I don't know. I have an aversion to old movies. You know what it is? That one's pretty good. There's like a good chunk in the middle that you could probably just like not have in there yeah because it's like doesn't it's a lot of like him being involved with being in the town it's like no i just want to know about the crime (laughs) i don't really care about your feelings of being in this town yeah we're gonna talk about truman capote um yeah good (laughs) but first we're going to talk about the clutters okay so the clutter family lived in holcomb kansas in 1959 okay Herbert, or Herb Clutter, the patriarch of the family, was a farmer who made more than enough to support his family of six. Herb and his wife, Bonnie May, had four children. 23-year-old Ivana and 21-year-old Beverly were living on their own. 16-year-old Nancy May and 15-year-old Kenyon Neal lived at the Clutter family home. Ivana was married and had moved to Nebraska, and Beverly was attending nursing school. The family, minus the two older daughters, lived in a rural 14-room farmhouse that sat on 640 acres of land. It's a lot of land. I didn't know it's it was that much. a shit ton of land. The town of Holcomb was fairly close-knit, and people who were residents during the 1950s remember that it was a very safe area. Those who knew the family remember Herb Clutter as an active member of the community, someone who is easy to get along with and a reliable and protective person to those whom he loved. Herb was also influential in the agricultural field in Kansas. In the documentary, they showed actually footage of him explaining how his farm worked for some like news broadcast. Mm -hmm. The family were members of the Methodist Church and were very active in that community. They very rarely, if ever, missed a Sunday service and would often carpool with friends. On the morning of November 15, 1959, the Ewalt family, who were friends of Bonnie and Herbs and the children, arrived at the Clutter home just a few minutes after 9 a.m. to pick them up for church. The Ewalt's daughter, Nancy, different Nancy than Nancy Mae Clutter. <laughs> That's why I call her Nancy Mae in this. She got out of the car and rang the doorbell, but no one answered. She went around back and looked at the garage and saw the family's cars parked there. After receiving no response from inside the home, the Ewalts began calling other families to see if they knew where the clutters were. Multiple people called the clutters' home phone, but no one answered. Finally, the Ewalts 
family returned to the clutter farm and they brought another neighbor who was a friend of Nancy's named Susan Kidwell with them. The door was unlocked and they entered to find the kitchen completely cleaned with not a dish in the sink. The Ewalds kept calling out for the clutters, but no one responded. They made their way up the stairs, and Susan Kidwell was the first to find Nancy May in her room. (laughs) Susan screamed and ran from the house, and Nancy Ewalt, who was behind her, went into the room. She saw Nancy May lying in her bed and at first thought that her friend was still asleep. She decided to try to wake Nancy May up by shaking her but then she noticed that there was blood all over the bedroom wall. Mr. Ewalt went to use the clutter's phone to call the police, but he noticed that the phone wires had been cut and the receiver was off the hook. He then went to his car and used his car phone to call authorities. Earl Robinson, the town sheriff and a friend of the family, received the radio call and went to the clutter home. He was led to Nancy May's body and then cautiously led the search for the other three family members. Herb Clutter was found in the furnace room. He had been bound, gagged, shot with a 12-gauge shotgun, and had his throat cut. So much overkill. It was a lot of overkill. Kenyon was found in a separate room in the finished basement. He was tied to a couch and had also been bound and gagged and shot in the head with a shotgun. Bonnie was upstairs in her room, shot in the side of the head with a shotgun, again bound and gagged. She was in her bed. Uh, Nancy May was also in her bed, bound, gagged, and shot in the side of the head. A half-bloody footprint was found on the floor of the basement, so it was actually on a mattress that Herb's body had been placed on after he was killed. The blood was determined to belong to Herb Clutter, and investigators were able to identify the shoe that had made the print. There were also prints made in the dust of the floor that were only visible when crime scene photographs were developed. The blood and the dust revealed two boot tread patterns. One was a cat's paw and the other was a diamond sole. A portable radio and a pair of binoculars were the only items missing from the home, and police could not find any evidence that cash had been taken. There was also no sign of forced entry. What weird things to take from someone's home. I know. They're very strange items out of the whole house. So Nancy had plans to go to a midnight movie with her boyfriend, Bobby Rupp, on Saturday, November 14th. However, Herb suggested that they go on Friday instead, and they did. If they had kept their date as planned... Fucking Herb! I know. It's very likely that Nancy May would not have been home and wouldn't have been killed. So the case was soon turned over to the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, the KBI. The lead investigator, Alvin Dewey, found that Herb Clutter had signed for a $40,000 life insurance policy the day of the murders, November 14th. This life insurance policy was later paid out to Ivana and Beverly. At first, investigators thought that the murders may have been linked to the insurance policy, but then they found out that the policy had been in the works for months and the date of signing was just a coincidence. That's a real big coincidence. <laughs> it, it really I mean, is. It's like unfortunate that that. It, yeah, like and that. it kind of like led them off the trail a little right. bit. So they also interviewed Rupp, Nancy May's boyfriend. He was the last person to see the family alive and was immediately deemed a suspect. Some thought that Herb Clutter may not have approved of Nancy May's boyfriend, and this could have been the motive. 
but Rupp was quickly ruled out. Also, what dad approves of their 15-year-old's boy? You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure he wasn't the most, you know. Yeah, he seemed like a good kid, though. He is interviewed in the documentary now. Yeah, Um, It's just like a typical Midwest family. You know, the dad pretends that he doesn't, you know, no no guy's good enough for my daughter, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Also, I will say, when I was, like, I read this book when I was young, like, probably, Mm -hmm. like, 13, 14, and the son is, like, he's pretty good looking (laughs) that son and that family it's like yeah okay your neck's a little wide but he was 1950s good looking yeah he was when i was 14 i was like oh the cute guy died you know (laughs) yeah um but nancy may's boyfriend so bobby rupp he became kind of like the focus of the town because they were like well it had to have been someone who knew them he was the last one to see them and he actually ended up switching schools that sucks also he's so young it's like yeah i mean not that young guys i guess couldn't murder a whole family but it just seems like overkill yeah yeah (laughs) so the hutchinson news offered a thousand dollar reward for information leading to the arrest of the murderers of the clutter family they received 250 leads but none panned out Ten days after the murders, an inmate at the Kansas State Penitentiary in Lansing saw the Hutchinson News and reached out claiming to have information. That inmate was Floyd Wells, who had been employed by Herb Clutter as a farmhand and had witnessed Herb pay someone in cash out of a safe on the Clutter property. According to Wells, Herb had about $10,000 in this safe. After he stopped working for Herb, Wells was arrested for burglary and was sent to the Kansas State Penitentiary. While he was serving time, he was cellmates with a man named Richard Dick Hickok. Um, He went by Dick. Yeah. Hickok was serving a sentence for stealing a rifle out of a residential home and then trying to resell it. Wells and Hickok talked about the clutter farm and the money that was thought to be in their safe. Hickok had always been a bit of a troublemaker. His father used to bail him out of trouble by giving a horse to the person Hickok had wronged. And locals always joked that you could tell how much trouble he was in by how many horses were in his father's field. (laughs) So, like, if there was no horses, like, you know that he had done a bunch of shit. Yeah. So when he was 19, Hickok was in a car accident in which he was ejected from the vehicle through the front windshield. He landed face down in a puddle and sustained permanent and disfiguring damage to his left eye. He claimed that he then started to experience fainting spells and hemorrhages that would bleed from his left ear and nose. After the accident, Hickok's personality changed. He became quick to anger and started drinking more. He would later confess that he molested children during this time and up until his capture. He married his first wife, who was only 16, I believe, the same year of his accident in 1950. But he soon left her for his mistress, with whom he had three children. In 1958, he was sent to the penitentiary, and his second wife divorced him as well while he was serving time. While in prison, Hickok met Perry Edward Smith. Smith was born to two rodeo stars, Flo Buckskin and Tex Smith. His mother was Native American, and his father was Irish. When wow. Was, yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen, like, pictures of Perry Smith? You can kind of tell. Yeah, I have. I guess I just didn't, like, look yeah. into, you know? Mm-hmm. That's just such a, a interesting mix. Irish it and is. American. Yeah. Well, it didn't work out. Um, oh. 
his well, father. I'm sure it did somewhere. Austin. <laughs> somewhere along <laughs> the way. <be> racist. <laughs> so his father abused his mother and Smith and his siblings. His mother eventually left his father and took all of the children with her to San Francisco, California. Flo was an alcoholic and died from alcohol-related aspiration when Smith was 13, um, which is basically choking on your own vomit. Yeah. Yeah. Smith and his siblings were placed in a Catholic orphanage where he was abused physically and emotionally. According to Smith, he was a chronic bedwetter, and the nuns at the orphanage beat him for it. His bedwetting was later determined to be a result of malnutrition. That's so sad. It's very sad. He spent some time in juvenile detention centers as well. When he was a little bit older, Smith reconnected with his father and started living with him and traveling throughout the U.S., occasionally committing petty crimes along their way. When Smith was 16, he joined the Army, again, before you had to be 18. 18 or do anything. Yeah, um, and he fought in the Korean War. While in Korea, Smith was often punished for fighting with Korean civilians. But despite this, he received an honorable discharge in 1952 and returned to Tacoma, Washington. He purchased a motorcycle and soon after wiped out on a patch of wet sand on a highway. He was nearly killed in the accident and his legs were barely saved. He survived after six months in the hospital, but his legs were deformed for the rest of his life. To stave off the chronic pain of his injuries, Smith would chew an excessive amount of aspirin. Like, chew it. Like, Ew. Yeah. Really gross. Weird. Yeah. I what guess a weirdo. It, I guess it gets in your bloodstream through your cheeks, like, faster. Huh. But that must taste just fucking horrific. Ugh. It was around this time that Smith's sister and brother both committed suicide, and his remaining sister severed all ties with him. So he has his father, who's a delinquent, and his sister will not talk to him, and that's the only family he has. Smith first met Hickok when they were both serving time in the Kansas State Penitentiary. Smith was sentenced to 5 to 12 years for breaking and entering in 1956. He was paroled first, and then the two reconnected when Hickok was released in November of 1959. While the two were in prison, Smith had bragged that he had clubbed an African-American man to death. Hickok had kept this in mind and chose Smith to carry out the robbery because he knew that Smith would be able and willing to kill witnesses, which we don't even know if this is true. We don't know if he ever murdered anyone before this. So right before his release, Hickok had written letters to Smith in which he asked him to take part in a robbery that Hickok was planning for when he was released, which like isn't really a great sign for the parole board that you're already planning your next crime. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Don't show them that notebook. Yeah. This is why prison letters are like checked now. (laughs) It's because of them. A condition of Smith's parole was that he not return to Kansas, and taking part in this scheme would entail violating his parole. According to Smith, he agreed to meet Hickok because he was told that another inmate friend of his was going to be involved as well, but when he got there, that friend had left for the East Coast. Soon, Smith learned that Hickok's plan was to use the information that he was given by Floyd Wells to rob the Clutter family. 
The pair prepared for the robbery by purchasing all of the rope in a store, like all of the rope they had. Like, Ron Swanson, give me all of give the eggs and bacon. Give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Yes. <laughs> they got a hunting knife and a shotgun all on credit. They first stopped at Hickok's family home in Edgerton, Kansas, before driving 400 miles to Holcomb on the night of November 14th, 1959. No one would know the specifics of the horrific events that took place that night until over a month later. Later. After the murders, Hickok and Smith fled the home and traveled throughout Kansas, first stopping at Hickok's sister's home where his bloody shirt and his rifle would later be found. On the way, Hickok passed about $500 in bad checks to pay for their needs. Back when you could just do whatever you want. Right? (laughs) Nothing. There was no, like, confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. And once you were gone, you were gone. Yeah. (laughs) One purchase was made at Brown's Furniture Mart in Kansas City. Also, can I just say, Mm -hmm. do you know the punishment for a bad check is 30 days in jail? That seems excessive. I'm just (laughs) saying. That is a lot. I feel like you should just have to work and pay that off. You just have to, you think you just have to pay whatever the check was worth. (laughs) Yeah. And when you're in prison, you can't make the money to pay the check. So, also, a lot of people who write bad checks are also like mothers down on their luck or like stupid teens or something. You know, it's like, or people who like, honestly didn't know that it would bounce. Right. You know? Yeah, that sucks. How crazy. Uh, the men used one of their bad checks to buy a television set, which is like, you're on the run. Why do you need a TV? Also, back then, it's like a yeah. big... <laughs> it's gigantic. And we're, like, trucking it throughout the United States. Yeah. So the police were notified when the check bounced, and investigators went to the store and asked several employees to positively identify the fraudsters, and they did. They tried to pass off another bad check at a gas station a few blocks away, but the attendant had actually gone to school with Hickok and knew better than to accept checks from him. (laughs) He's like, dude, nah. (laughs) We're not doing this. (laughs) They then decided to flee the country and headed south to Mexico. When they got to Mexico, they shipped a box of their personal items to Las Vegas. They spent some time in Mexico but soon ran out of money. Hickok and Smith decided to go back to the United States and drove up into California and then made their way east to Florida, where they traveled around the state. Which is like, that's such a weird, like, U-turn to make. Also Florida. So while they traipsed around the U.S., police began following up on Wells' tip. They interviewed Hickok's sister, who lived about 400 miles from Holcomb. According to Miss Hickok, Richard had been staying with her for a few days, but she hadn't seen him since the afternoon of November 15th. Police asked to search the home, and she agreed. Inside, they found a bloody shirt and a shotgun in the closet. The 12-gauge shotgun had been purchased in Olitha, Kansas, on credit. Now, ownership of a shotgun wasn't rare in Kansas, but there was something about the gun that made investigators believe it was connected to the crime. KBI agent Harold Nye began interviewing Hickok's ex-wives, family members, and friends. Nye was confident at this point that Hickok was likely their suspect. In late December, Hickok and Smith headed west to Las Vegas, where they were finally spotted by police. Their car was parked outside of a post office with the same plates that had been reported to law enforcement. They didn't think to change them? (laughs) No, they didn't. It's the same stolen car. (laughs) (laughs) Las Vegas officers apprehended the men on site. Hickok and Smith had been picking up the box they had shipped from Mexico. Inside the package, police found two pairs of boots, one with a cat's paw sole and the other with a diamond tread. 
Harold Nye, one of the leaders of the KBI's investigation, confirmed with the Las Vegas police that these shoes were very likely the ones that had left the footprints in the clutter home. Those shoe prints were a critical piece of evidence, and it was pure luck that the police grabbed them after they had picked the package up. Because if they had grabbed them before, they would have never had that evidence. Yeah. Nye drove to Las Vegas to transport the fugitives, and they were taken into KBI custody on December 30th, 1959, 46 days after the murders. Hickok and Smith initially claimed that they had been staying with Smith's sister at her home in Fort Scott, Kansas. Police spoke to Smith's sister and discovered that not only did she have no contact with her brother, but she had never lived in Fort Scott. So that she was, was just like, completely made up. Fuck him, and also fuck him. Yeah, <laughs> he's exactly. not going to use me. <laughs> Almost immediately, KBI agents separated Hickok and Smith. Hickok proved to be the more talkative of the two and told investigators that he had not killed anyone and that Smith had been the one to pull the trigger each time. Smith was almost the exact opposite. He told the police very little and denied having any knowledge or involvement in the murders. After Hickok made his official confession in Las Vegas, charges were filed against Hickok and Smith for four counts of murder. They were transported separately back to Garden City, Kansas, which is about eight miles from Holcomb, where they were going to be held and tried. I think that's like the county seat. Smith was riding in a car with Dewey, Al Dewey, the KBI agent, Mm -hmm. behind the car that Hickok was in. Dewey used the long drive to his advantage and told Smith that Hickok had given a full confession and heavily implicated Smith in the murders. As Dewey told Smith this, they could both see Hickok talking to agents in the car in front of them. (laughs) So he's just like yapping away. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Smith told Dewey, quote, isn't he tough? Look at him talk. Hickok had told me if we were ever caught that we weren't going to say a word. But there he is just talking his head off. He's just like, I spy something blue. (laughs) You're yeah, never that's gonna what get he's it. doing. He's like, ooh, I like this song. Turn this one up. Look at those trees. Just... What kind of trees yeah. do you think those are? Do you think birds live in that trees? I love birds. <laughs> yeah, it's just completely unrelated. <laughs> so Smith became angry and launched into his side of the story. He told Dewey that Hickok drove them to the Clutter family farmhouse. Smith tried to talk Hickok out of the robbery, but Hickok insisted that there was money in the house. And he also talked about the prospect of a teenage girl that he could rape in the home. Hickok would later confess, quote, Before I ever went into their house, I knew there would be a girl there. I think that's the main reason I went there. It was not to rob them, but to rape the girl. He told Smith on the drive to Holcomb, quote, I sure would like, oh, this is a disgusting quote. I'm sorry. I apologize for this. This is like one of the most disgusting things I've ever read. Yeah, so this is what he told Smith on the drive. He said, quote, I sure would like to bust that little girl's box out. That's honestly so gross. Yeah. But right before they began their intrusion, Hickok made no mention of Nancy May. Instead, he pointed out the clutter home as evidence of their wealth. He had told Smith, just look at the setup. I know damn well he's got a safe in there. So he was like, their house is nice. They must have a safe. They must have money. Yeah, just lying around. Yeah. So they arrived between midnight and 1 a.m. and entered through the unlocked office door. They used a flashlight and began looking for the safe but couldn't find it. 
They stumbled upon Herb Clutter downstairs and asked him where the safe was. He told them that there was no safe and there was no money in the home. Hickok insisted that Herb was lying to him and his frustration escalated. Hickok ordered Smith to disable the phone in the home while he continued to interrogate Herb about the money. Smith asked Herb who was on the second floor of the home, and he had told the intruders that his wife and children were asleep in their beds. The men first woke Bonnie up. Herb assured her that the men only wanted money and told her not to be afraid. She affirmed that there was no safe with cash in the home. Hickok asked where Bonnie's purse was, and she pointed him to it. There were a few dollars inside, which Hickok took. Then, Hickok and Smith went to 15-year-old Kenyon's room, followed by Nancy's room. Nancy had already been woken up by the commotion. Hickok herded the Clutter family into the upstairs bathroom and ordered them to stay there while he and Smith searched the home for money. They found around $50 in various places around the house. They then returned upstairs and separated Kenyon and Herb from Bonnie and Nancy. One by one, they bound and gagged each family member. Bonnie was tied up in her bedroom, and the same was done to Nancy in her room. Kenyon and Herb had their hands tied behind their backs and were led to the basement at gunpoint. Kenyon was placed in one section of the basement and was tied to a black leather couch that was there. The boy's feet were tied to the right end of the couch, and his wrists were tied behind his back and secured to the left end of the couch. He was left laying down while Hickok and Smith continued deeper into the basement with Herb. Herb was taken to the furnace room, and he was kind of bound to this pipe that was on the ceiling, kind of hung from it, but not really. So Hickok thought that the safe may be hidden somewhere in this basement. And when they got there, they found that there still wasn't a safe. In fact, Herb Clutter was known not to carry much cash and preferred to conduct business dealings with checks. As it became obvious that the two robbers would not be leaving with the $10,000 they came for, Smith became increasingly angry at Hickok for dragging him into the situation. He asked Hickok, quote, what do we do now? Hickok told Smith, quote, I'm in favor of getting rid of them. Ugh. Yeah. Hickok never planned to do any of the dirty work. He thought that Smith had already killed someone and that he could pass that task off to him. Smith and Hickok began arguing over who would kill Herb. And he's just sitting there in the middle. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Smith eventually said that he would do it, and he took out a large hunting knife. Smith was seething with rage, not at Herb or the rest of the Clutter family, but at Hickok. He put this rage into the murder of Herb Clutter. Smith took the knife and stabbed it directly into Herb's neck. Herb began to make a desperate gurgling sound as he choked on his own blood. Smith turned to Hickok and told him, Now it's your turn. Do your part. Hickok took the knife and stabbed the same location that Smith did. Literally, didn't even make a new cut, just stabbed the same Jesus. one. Yeah, Smith, realizing that Hickok wasn't going to finish the job, told him, Dick, the man is suffering. He then took the shotgun and fired directly at Herb Clutter's face. He later reported that he saw, quote, a flash of blue light, which allowed him to, quote, see his head split apart. Ugh. Yeah. Smith then took the gun and walked toward Kenyon. He couldn't see well in the darkness of the basement, and he aimed the barrel where he believed the boy's head to be. Mm. He fired and hit Kenyon in the head, killing him. Hickok and Smith returned to the second floor of the home. 
And Hickok expressed to Smith that he planned on raping 16-year-old Nancy before they killed her. But Smith, who was disgusted by Hickok's pedophilic desires, would not let him. Nancy May was in her bed with her wrists bound behind her back, her ankles tied together, and a length of rope connecting her wrists and ankles behind her. The teenager was shot in the side of the head, sending blood spatter on her bedroom wall. Bonnie Clutter was the last to be killed. She was shot in her bed with her hands bound in front of her and tied to her ankles. With all of the present members of the Clutter family dead, Hickok and Smith grabbed Kenyon's portable radio and Herb's binoculars, got into their stolen car, and headed out of town. Now, we don't know who actually pulled the trigger in the murder of Nancy or Bonnie. At trial, it was said that Smith was the shooter in all of them, but later he said that Hickok had actually killed the two women and that he had said he did it at trial because he didn't want to upset Hickok's mother. With Smith's confession, investigators had a complete account of the murders. KBI agent Al Dewey began holding daily press conferences to keep the public and the press updated about the case. After one press conference, Al Dewey was introduced to two strangers who would come to play huge roles in the case and its legacy. The sheriff's secretary led a woman with short brown hair and a small man into Dewey's office to meet with him. They introduced themselves as Nell Harper Lee and Truman Capote. Capote told Dewey that he intended to write a story about the Clutter family murders. Truman had been following the case since news of it had reached him, and he asked several town officials for access to the inner workings of the investigation, but had been denied each time. Dewey was the first person inside of the investigation to allow Capote to take part in it. He facilitated communication between Capote and some other officials, and that was how Capote was granted access to the home. He took a slew of photographs of him standing in the Clutter farmhouse and took notes about the rooms and the layout. These pictures are pretty famous now. (laughs) He interviewed Smith and Hickok often and formed relationships with the killers. He became especially close to Smith, who was notoriously hard to talk to. Smith was very guarded and took a long time to open up to people. Some think that he was amenable to Capote because they were both really short. (coughs) Capote was notoriously small and stood at 5 feet 3 inches. Smith was only 1 inch taller, though he was not as slight as Capote. Capote was just small in every way. Have you ever seen, like, video of him? Yes. (laughs) He also has a very, I guess notable way of talking he does yeah yes and also he's just like he's one of those people who you kind of want he's kind of not to say he's a mean girl but he's like regina george where like the more you don't want to be around her you still want to be around like you want Mm -hmm. him to talk to you to like you because he has like a weird speech but he's yeah very like frail and like you know um Mm -hmm. he's very charismatic in a way that's not normally how you see charismatic people you know he's not like yes. loud and but he draws you in yes he is very soft-spoken yeah and he says the word quite a lot yes <laughs> it was something i noticed mm-hmm. and i did want to work on an impression of him but i don't think i can do it <laughs> he, it's very hard like philip seymour hoffman does almost a spot-on impression of him oh yeah and he he said he like in an interview he said he worked on it for like two years like it was so hard 
Because mm-hmm. it's so particular and you almost don't want to go like kind of derogatory with it. Yeah. Because it's, it's like a mix of everything. Like it's not Southern. It's not mm-hmm. feminine, but it is. But it's not, you know, it's like. Yeah. He also has kind of like a lisp mm-hmm, going but not, on. But not, not really, like a though. full on lisp. Like you couldn't mm-hmm. just do a lisp. You know what I mean? Like it's not just that. It's like a mixture yeah. of. A lot of different things. Yeah, and I feel like it's kind of become when people do very derogatory, like homosexual speech patterns. Yeah, they it's very much derivative from from his interviews. It kind of reminds me from living like in the South and in Alabama, especially. It kind of reminds me of really formal people from like Mm -hmm. Mississippi. Yeah, they almost speak, and you think. Are they gay or are they Southern? Which is like not great. But you know what I mean? Like you can't really tell it's on the, you know, like Mm -hmm. they're all kind of sounding like that. Like that's just their, you know. And he was very like everyone thought of him as a New Yorker because that's, you know, where he spent a lot of his famous life. But he was Mm -hmm. from New Orleans. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So he did have that Southern drawl kind of. He's very interesting. I actually kind of decided after this because I wrote so much, I had to cut it down for this. And so Mm -hmm. I might do this case in more detail and with more of the psychology um, on my other podcast. And I'll also talk about like Smith's relationship with Truman Capote, because apparently it was very close, but very destructive. Like it's very, it's interesting Mm -hmm. to talk about. Also, there was a big thing about how like, not big, but there were a few articles, especially out of the new, the new one's not called In Cold Blood, right? I think it's just called Capote. Oh, maybe. Yeah. It's a biography. Yeah. Yeah. But it focuses about him. It's about him writing In Cold Mm -hmm. Blood. Yeah. But um, there's a big thing about how some people are like, wait, were they in love? Were they like... Or were they just really close friends or were they even friends just like, but I think that's kind of good. Like, I think that's probably how it was where like sometimes they were best friends and sometimes they were enemy. Like it was a very Mm -hmm. weird relationship. Yeah. I'll talk about that also after the court stuff because, you know, just as a fun fact, do you mm -hmm. know Robert Blake plays Perry Smith in the original movie, which is crazy because Robert Blake was then accused of killing his wife. I, yes, by I shooting her. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. That and crazy? that was uh, it. Was funny because like all of his major roles were something to do with true like yeah. crime. Yeah, it's so crazy it is. And then your um, guy, of course, played the other guy, which I think is funny. Yes, Herschel. Yeah, Herschel played uh, Herschel played did. Hickok. Yep. Yeah. So court proceedings began on March twenty second, nineteen sixty, which is real quick. That is quick. They were really, they were looking for that in and out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Locals and reporters mobbed the courthouse to see the murders. Hickok and Smith were tried together and both faced the death penalty. Tried together too. Could you imagine the madhouse? That courthouse had never seen as many people. Oh, no. That was like the biggest thing in history in that town. Like, the worst just, thing that had ever happened previously was, right. like, someone stealing someone's cow. Yeah, and it's just, like, it's also back in the day where there are TVs, but there's not a lot on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, this was it, you know? Oh, this yeah. This was the thing. Yeah, also in the documentary, they interview this guy who, um, I think he was, like, the, the DA's son. Mm-hmm. But his family moved into the courthouse oh during this. Oh, my God. This. I know. Uh, to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> yeah, for real. 
Yeah. So there was no question as to if they had committed the murders. The jury was instead tasked with determining if the men were individually guilty enough to be executed. <laughs> yeah. The guys were like, no, we fucking did it. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> they were like, they did okay, it. do you know how this works? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You could have haggled for something. <laughs> yeah. Their defense team was like, we might as well just not. Um, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Mitchell Jones was the psychiatrist hired by the defense to assess Smith and Hickok. He spent many hours interviewing both defendants and was called to testify at the trial. Dr. Jones described Smith as having a, quote, borderline psychotic mind state Same. and noted, yeah, and noted Hickok's head injury was a mitigating factor. I mean, it has to be, right? Like, Yeah. I mean, listen, we have a lot of, did you see what I posted on our Instagram? Killer bingo. Like, we've got a lot of spots on this. We have bedwetting. And that was a pretty big head injury. Like, that wasn't, he wasn't just, like, hit by a swing, you know? No, it was really bad. Bad enough to change his personality, which is the type of head injury we look for. So when Dr. Jones was called to testify, he was asked one question and was only allowed to answer yes or no. They cray cray. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like crazy or no. (laughs) Um, So he was asked first if Richard Hickok knew right from wrong at the time that the crime was committed. He answered yes. When asked the same about Smith, Dr. Jones said that he had not reached a conclusion. He was then dismissed and gave no further testimony. Less than 30 minutes after closing arguments were finished, the jury returned a verdict. They voted unanimously to impose the death penalty on Hickok and Smith. I still hate it. They were to be executed by hanging. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks. Relatives of the Clutter family were satisfied with the sentence, and Hickok and Smith were transported to Kansas State Prison in Lansing, where they first met. Only this time, they were taken to death row. Within Mm. 90 days, an execution date was set for both men. Friday, May 13th, 1960. Friday the 13th. But Smith and Hickok exercised their right to appeal and succeeded in getting several stays of execution. Hickok wrote letters to state officials and judges asking for stays and pardons. Capote continued to be involved in the case and became very close friends with Alvin Dewey, the lead KBI agent. Capote lived in Kansas while he was working on what would become his most famous work, a nonfiction novel called In Cold Blood. This book effectively began the true crime literature genre as we know it today. Capote combined journalism with the stylistic elements of fiction writing to craft a compelling narrative that included not only the Clutter family murders, but the stories of Smith and Hickok. He became increasingly close to the murderers as they waited on death row. Perry Smith and Truman Capote cultivated a close relationship. The two men, who were extremely different, found out that they had faced similar difficulties in their childhoods. While Capote had not experienced the brutality that Smith had, he had grown up in a very emotionally deprived environment. Both Smith and Capote had not been provided with the love they craved from their parental figures. Capote once wrote, quote, It's as if Perry and I grew up in the same house, and one day he stood up and went out the back door while I went out the front. As the date approached, Capote received upsetting letters from Smith. In one letter, Smith described a chapter that he had read in a medical dictionary that detailed how a person died by hanging. (laughs) Smith was understandably upset by what he had read as he tried to prepare himself for death. Capote traveled to Lansing, Kansas for the execution. 
Dr. Jones was asked by Smith to be a witness, and he agreed. He was able to see Smith the afternoon before the hanging and reported that he was in fairly good spirits as he ate his last meal, which consisted of vanilla ice cream, Coca-Cola, 7-Up, deep-fried jumbo shrimp, strawberries and whipped cream, shortcake, french fries, fried onion rings, and hot rolls and garlic bread. Look, yes, that would be me. I'd be a, I would want I would want the most popular <laughs> menu item from every fast food restaurant in the yes. world. I mean, listen, he did it right. <laughs> so Smith told Dr. Jones that he was ready to go. But Hickok was escorted to the gallows first. On the way, one of the prison guards offered him a cigarette, which he refused. He joked, cigarettes cause cancer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His lighthearted demeanor changed when the gallows restraints were put on him. He was placed in handcuffs that were attached to a large metal ring on a belt. This kind of restraint is used to prevent people from throwing their arms out to stop their descent into the trap door on the gallows floor. Shortly before midnight on April 14th, Hickok was led to the wooden gallows. Along the walk, Hickok took in his last view of the sky and told the KBI agents who had worked on the case that there were no hard feelings. He shook each present agent's hand and told them goodbye before he was escorted up the 13 steps to the platform. The noose was lowered and secured around Hickok's neck. The hangman positioned himself at the lever, and when the warden gave the signal, the trapdoor opened and Hickok fell. A split second after the lever was pulled, a flock of pigeons erupted from the rafters. Hickok was pronounced dead at 12.41 a.m. What a weird time to do. Well, they try to do a lot of executions like, oh, your execution date is this, but they try to do it at like 12.01 a.m. Mm -hmm. As soon as the day the starts. Way, yeah. yeah. Minutes later, Perry Smith was led to the gallows. Smith ascended to the platform and stared the executioner down. The warden asked Smith for his last words, and he said, yes, a word or two. I think that it's a hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner. Any apology for what I've done would be meaningless at this time. I don't have any animosities toward anyone involved in this matter. I think that is all. Which is like, I think it's a hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner. Do you know what you did? Yeah, but I think he's right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yes, it's just a weird hill to die on. Ha ha yeah. ha. <laughs> but also his point is a very good point where it's like, if I apologize now, it doesn't yeah. matter because everyone would just see it as me trying to apologize to get out of this. Like, mm -hmm. it's not a real apology. So I guess I'm not going to apologize. The end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the noose was fitted around Smith's neck and the lever was pulled. Pull the moment the lever crawled. <laughs> yes, it's like And then that. the hangman drops. <laughs> <laughs> so the moment Perry Smith's body reached the end of the rope, a clap of thunder rang out, which is like both of these had like weird things happen yeah. right at the time of, you know. But here's the thing. The trap door had been opened at 1.02 a.m. and Smith was pronounced dead at 1.19 a.m. Yeah. Sucks. Because you don't tie that rope right. You're just hanging there. Oh, and it, he's also a short guy. He doesn't have like a lot. He wasn't overweight yeah. or anything it's like it's not gonna snap his neck like it's supposed to no no he's gonna suffocate he's gonna mm -hmm. be strangled to death basically capote and dr jones stood next to one another as they witnessed the executions dr jones said that capote was obviously drunk and he was sobbing the entire time one spectator kupc news director art wilson later spoke about the executions and said quote i would further like to say that i have seen the newly born and there i saw a purpose 
I have seen the maimed, the crippled, and the dead, and even there I saw the purpose. But what I saw tonight, I saw no purpose, which I think is just a great quote. Mm -hmm. Hickok and Smith were buried next to each other at the Mount Muncie Cemetery in Lansing, Kansas. Capote purchased headstones for the men, but they were later stolen and replaced with generic markers. After the deaths of Perry Smith and Richard Hickok, Truman Capote completed his book. In Cold Blood was published on January 17, 1966, and catapulted the author into infamy less than one year after he stood crying next to the gallows where his so-called friends died. Needless to say, some Holcomb locals were displeased with the book. They believed that Capote was capitalizing on a horrific tragedy. The family of the Clutters also had issues with the book. They found dozens of inaccuracies about the case and their loved ones. Well, he really went in on Bonnie. (laughs) That, like yes and like she was the focus for a while yeah. and it seemed like so the way he portrayed bonnie was bad she was painted as a depressed and almost agoraphobic woman with little life left in her in reality apparently she had like some postpartum depression mm-hmm. after she had her first child but she like sought out help and got treated for it so she had like on and she off had depression. Some depression throughout her life like i yes. think there were like her family was like yeah when she was a teenager blah 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 but yeah mm-hmm. he really painted her as like it was almost like they were doing a justice by killing her because she didn't have any life left <laughs> yeah which is totally not true because no. <laughs> they actually in the documentary they show she had sent a letter out to all of their like extended family members and mm-hmm. she had said It's been a really long time since we all had Thanksgiving, so this is an invitation to come to the farm for Thanksgiving. We're going to have board games, and we're going to do this, and it's going to be, like, a family reunion for, like, a few days. Mm -hmm. So she was planning this whole event. Yeah. And looking forward to having all these people. She played with her kids. There's pictures of them at the beach. Like, she was not... Yeah, and I know pictures can lie, but she seemed pretty happy. Like, she seemed as happy, you know... Yeah, she was also getting ready for her daughter's wedding that was yeah. supposed to take place a week after the murders. And mm. that she still, the wedding still went on. And the investigators also had advised the daughter, um, Beverly, they had said, you should just change your name now because the media is going to Yeah, get it's going to go crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, she was involved in all of these things. So it was really a huge disservice to not depict her properly mm-hmm. so i absolutely understand what their right. issue and is with he, that he also spoke about the two living daughters daughters yeah and it was just like like looking back when i first read the book i was like tell me more about everything <laughs> yeah. but it's like they probably didn't need to be mentioned more than just like they were survived by you know what i mean it yeah. was kind of like let's give them some privacy yeah because when um, the book came out it had been a year like like, yeah. or two years or, you know, like, not very long. Mm-hmm. Well, it was less than a year after they, the Hickok and Smith were executed. Mm-hmm. And um, it had been five and a half years since, yeah, the murders. since the murders. And for the documentary, I know I bring this documentary up a lot. I watch it two times. It's four episodes long. It's four hours, basically. <laughs> um, the daughter of Ivana and um, her granddaughter... Uh, they are interviewed, but they do not appear on camera. Um, so y- you just hear their voice, uh, their voices. And then Herb and Bonnie's niece, you know, Kenyon and Nancy's cousin, she is interviewed mm-hmm. on camera. 
And she gives a lot of insight as to what the family was actually like. Yeah. So some readers also took issue with the sympathetic light in which Smith and Hickok were cast. Um, which I haven't read it, so I don't know if that's true. <laughs> yeah, but also he he created a personal relationship with them that kind of bordered on ethical. Well, and like, I think the point was, well, also, when he started writing the book, it wasn't so set in stone what they did slash how they did mm-hmm. it. But also, it's important, especially in a death penalty case, to realize that even horrific criminals have a backstory. Yeah, I mean, both of life. these, there are mitigating factors for both of these people. Yeah. Um, they just, I think people were kind of like, wow, he bashed Bonnie, but he's kind mm-hmm. of sticking up for these two men who murdered a family. Right. Um, I think that was the feeling. Well, also, in Capote's defense, Bonnie's dead. Yes, he these can't two interview kids, her. These two guys... Well, also, she's dead. These two guys mm-hmm. aren't dead yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. so giving them some like backstory or whatever might have been, you know what I mean? Like, they're there yeah. in front of him. They're real life people. Yeah. Who, who yeah. are going to die simply because it's a law, you know? Like, mm-hmm. so in cold not that blood, I'm siding with Capote. I think he could have, I think he could have talked he about done a better job. I think, yeah. I think he talked about her that way because he knew it'd make a better book. Yeah. I think the bottom line for him was like, how is this going to be more compelling? Like, yeah. it's already compelling, but I want to just put it in the stratosphere. Right. And if he's going to end the book as being this second, because that's how it kind of, it starts with a tragedy and ends with a tragedy. That's how the mm-hmm. book's written. Yeah. And so, like, if he's going to end it and want you to think, like, their death was also a tragedy, making the family's tragedy seem less in any way, you know, yeah. like, like, if he tells the truth and they're all this big, loving, happy family, that's somehow worse than if Bonnie was dealing... You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, maybe they weren't so happy kind of thing. Yeah, if you second guess a little. Yeah. Which... Then it makes it a little less, you know? Yeah. So, In Cold Blood became the second best-selling true crime novel in history. Capote was awarded the Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime. So that happened the same year, 1966. But according to those close to him, Capote was never the same after In Cold Blood. His writing companion and lifelong friend, Nell Harper Lee, mm-hmm. published her novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, Kill. Yep. in 1960, and the two became increasingly distant after that. Capote became a cultural icon. He was small, flamboyant, openly gay, and a raging drug addict. He never published another novel after In Cold Blood and instead spent his time socializing and writing the occasional piece for a magazine. His drug use and alcoholism escalated and he died in Bel Air, Los Angeles on August 25th, 1984, just one month before his 60th birthday. So sad. Yeah. I mean, he had to watch two guys die. Like, that's... Yeah. Gonna I mean, make you not want to write another book again. I mean, yeah. Well, and especially, I it must have been so emotionally taxing to be involved with this case. Yeah, it's such a fresh case. Yes, and he documented every aspect of it. Like mm-hmm. he was, he couldn't just ignore stuff and focus on, you know, just the trial or just this. He wanted to lay it all out. Right, which is why it's a good book. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, 
mm-hmm. it's good because there's a lot of detail in it, a lot of fact. But like yeah. he goes into detail about how the bodies, like you said, that pic- those pictures are famous. But also he mm-hmm. goes into detail about like how they're placed, why they're placed. There, you know. It's- yeah, his death was determined to be from liver disease, quote, complicated by phlebitis and multiple drug intoxication. In 2012, 53 years after the Clutter murders, authorities announced that they were exhuming the bodies of Perry Edward Smith and Richard Eugene Hickok. The murderers were suspected in the 1959 murder of the Walker family in Osprey, Florida. Four members of the family, 24-year-old Christine Walker, 25-year-old Cliff Walker, 3-year-old Jimmy Walker and 1-year-old Debbie Walker were murdered on December 19, 1959 at their farmhouse. Hickok and Smith had been in Florida at the time of the murders and had checked out of a motel in Miami Beach that morning. That day, they had made a purchase at a department store in Sarasota just a few miles from the Walker home. In December of 2012, both bodies, now skeletal, were exhumed and DNA was extracted from the bones. Mrs. Walker had been sexually assaulted and semen had been collected from the crime scene. The DNA samples were not positively matched to the semen, but this didn't rule out Hickok and Smith because the sample may have been too degraded to be matched. Their sample, the bone. Family members of the Clutters refused to speak publicly until 2018. Herb and Bonnie, Clutter's niece, as well as Ivana Clutter's daughter and granddaughter, gave extensive interviews for the documentary Cold-Blooded, The Clutter Family Murders. The Clutter farm was up for auction in 2006, but no one offered a sufficient bid. Some locals believe that the ghost of Nancy Clutter haunts the home and can be seen roaming the halls at night. It's gotta be haunted. (laughs) You'd think. Right? The massacre of the Clutter family has become an infamous American crime, albeit one with more focus on the killers and Truman Capote than on the people whose lives were lost. And that's the Clutter family. It's just such a good book. I just love the book. Because in the end, you go in reading and thinking in cold blood, okay, yes, this family died in cold blood, but Mm -hmm. in the end... They also died in cold blood. What? You know, like, it's one of those times where, like, as a 14-year-old reading it, I was like, yes, they're the bad guys. They need to die at the end. And then all of a sudden, it was like, it was the first time I was like, oh, right. They could have just not killed them. Yeah. The same way those guys could have just not killed that family. You know what I mean? It's like. Mm-hmm. Oh, and um, and the niece of the clutters um in the documentary she says she was like listen we all were happy that they got the death penalty and i have never wished for death for anyone i'm not even in favor of the death penalty and she said and i knew it wouldn't make me feel better but for some reason it just seemed like the right thing to do Mm -hmm. which is very hard to reconcile yeah also, look, if you're the family of a murder victim, mm-hmm. you have every right, like in my mind, if the death penalty is an option, I would never expect you to not want to choose that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I get that sense of wanting yeah, but, justice. But that's also why we don't, you know, have the family members of the victims as jury members. Right. And it's also why, like, in my mind, it'd be it would do more justice for family members to not have to live with that pain, which is Mm -hmm. why I don't think it should be an option. Like she Mm -hmm. now has to live with the fact that those people died because her family was murdered and she doesn't 
like the death penalty and believe it's just, but she was happy when it happened because, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, giving everyone more and more issues. Absolutely. Instead of them just staying in prison for the rest of their life. Yeah. If that was the only option, if that was the most extreme. Yeah. Um, And there was a lot of stuff I didn't even go into because obviously Mm -hmm. this has been really long. It's a Um, big, it's a big. Oh my God. There's so much going on. And part of the reason why I chose it initially, I had clicked on it, the Clutter family, without knowing it was the In Cold Blood case. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, yeah, that's, I mean, that's that. Yeah, because it's so far removed, kind Mm -hmm. of. Um, Honestly, I always thought that In Cold Blood was a uh, mob book for some reason. I guess it's Truman Capote. Sounds like a mobster name to me. And Um, it is a shooting death so you could easily yeah. think like maybe yeah so i that's why i never read it i'm gonna read it now and the book at least the book i had is just a house and then there's blood splatter on it so it would be easy to think like yeah i i'll send you a picture of mine mine is literally just like it looks like i guess what you would kind of see if you went out their front door like just flat kind of farmland mm-hmm. with like a blue sky but so i chose it also partially because it's such a strange, like, it's not a common kind of murder. It's Right, it's not two very, people. Yeah, and it's, they don't know this family, and they brutally mm-hmm. murder them. And they go in looking to rob them. Yeah, so and you end think with they just leave. Murder. Yeah. Exactly. It's, this kind of stranger intrusion murder does not happen often. Like, the only other one I can kind of relate it to is BTK, but he's a sexually motivated serial mm-hmm. killer. This is very different. Well, it's kind of axe murders of New Orleans mm-hmm. and the Viesca murders. It's like, who... But those are unsolved, so we don't exactly. know. It could we don't be know if they knew, knew all of those people. Yes. It's just, it is really strange. And also the brutality of it and the coldness of it of, like, Okay, if you don't find a safe, what is it? And it's back in the day where if they had just left and gone far enough away, they wouldn't have gotten caught. So it's not yeah. like, oh, they've seen our faces. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So it's just that was the that was the excuse Hickok used. Right. He was like, Oh, well, any witnesses, we can't leave witnesses. Right. It's like, well, maybe fucking wear a mask or something, you dickweed. Right. You're going yeah. in without a mask and you know you're gonna wake them up to ask for it. So and that's another big thing. It's like did they go in thinking we're going to kill this family, but let's use robbery, like both knowing in the back of their mind they were going to kill them, but they wanted to use robbery as like a cover even for themselves. Yeah. Like as an excuse. Mm-hmm. Or did they really go in thinking that family was going to be alive at the end of the night and something happened? I think that Hickok was really motivated by the sexual aspect. I think he wanted to. Yeah. I think that's true. And And I think that he was like, if I do that, then, I mean, we might as well just kill all of them. I think he was just like... Well, if... Yeah, I think he knew if he did that, he'd have to kill them. Yes. Um, I think Smith... But even that didn't happen. No, because Smith won't let it. It's weird that the psychologist said that he was borderline psychotic because he had, like, clear morals, like he, well, he had would, his own set of morals. Yeah. He did. And he claims to have been like up until they got there to have been like, listen, we don't need to do this. He was fine with stabbing Herb. He was fine with shooting Kenyon in the head. And then it was like, no, you cannot rape a teenager. So like that's where he right. drew that line. 
Whereas but Hickok also, seemed to just, I don't know. But also maybe he was just mad and so he didn't do it because of morals. He did it because he just didn't want him to have something he liked. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, he he was. Because it's weird that they start out with the dad, too. It's not like he's about to rape the girl and the girl gets shot and now they have to kill everyone. Like, they start out with the dad. Why did they even have to kill the dad? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. there was no reason. All of it was just completely yeah. unneeded. That's the thing. Yeah. Like we were talking about with the Nova Scotia rampage. It's just completely unneeded. Yeah. There's no reason. Um, so that was a long in. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, at least I have ample time to edit this because I don't commute to school anymore. So, um, also, so I tried Quibi for the seven day trial solely to watch Murder House Flip. Uh Not worth it. I'm just going to put that out there. Not worth it. It needs (laughs) to be the Property Brothers doing that show. (laughs) Yes. It needs to be them or Chip and JoJo. See, I wanted like a mashup of like kind of ghost hunters and like flipper flop or something. And this was not it. Yeah. Like this just was not that that I wanted. It's also like because they're only eight minutes per episode. So it's like three parts for one house. Yeah. So, I mean, like they do the Dorothea Puente house and they just like put a patio (laughs) where the bodies were. (laughs) They're like, here. This is a cactus. It'll look lovely. Yes, exactly. So it's, I was just like, really? Like, people are paying $8 a month for this? Yeah. So um, that was not... that. <sighs> I canceled that subscription. On the bright side, if you want a subscription, you should pay for it. Or mm-hmm. not even pay for it. If you haven't yet, Shudder lets you get 30 oh, days for free. It's Excellent. so good. I'm keeping it. Like, I've decided to keep it. See, I feel like I've watched everything on it. <laughs> I haven't because my parents don't really watch horror movies and I've been here. Me and Jake have been in a big horror movie spooky oh. vibe. So we've been watching a lot. And now I'm at the point where I don't know what to do because now I don't have anything to watch. Oh, yeah. I've also probably watched every YouTube episode of everything ever. <laughs> like just over and over again. Yeah, I downloaded a few like shitty horror movies today that I can watch but my list on Shudder is huge and I mm-hmm. haven't gotten through it so I have that to look forward to. <laughs> Mike will be happy when he gets back. Yeah. I I really want to just watch every episode of America's Next Top Model. I mm-hmm. think that's my next foray. I've been forcing my parents, mainly my dad, to watch 90 Day Fiance. <laughs> Such an interesting show. It's been so good. So yeah, continue doing things that make you happy. Watch horror movies. I'm going to learn how to cross stitch. I was um, doing some of that before. At the oh yeah? Of this. yeah? I've never done it, um, but it's I'm going hard. to. I'm going to learn so I can keep my hands busy and not shoveling food into my fat fucking face oh don't bring up food i'm so hungry right now <laughs> i'm hungry too i've made so many banana breads <laughs> i love banana bread i should make banana bread i made vegan banana bread and it actually turned out okay well vegan um, banana bread anything with bananas always turns out great if you make it vegan or whatever because mm-hmm, bananas just yeah they do so yeah, much for you. it's it's so much it's better than like trying to make dry yeah. ass cookies or something yeah. okay so we are hell and high horror on everything except twitter on twitter we are hell high horror our email address is hell and high horror at gmail.com i am austin castelli on everything I am Reparata Ann on everything. And I think that's it, right? I think so. Okay. Happy hauntings, everyone. Bye. Bye.
brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.